Appamada's programmes and facilities are supported through your generosity. Your support really does make a huge difference. You'll find a link for contributions on the website at appamada.org forward slash contribute. Thank you so much. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I'll do a couple of introductions later on, but I, I want to uh, uh, just suggest that we uh, sit until 10 minutes after the hour and uh, allow time for other people to join us while we're sitting, okay? Um, we, uh, uh, John Cooley is, has joined us and he, uh, I'll just say briefly, he lives in Austin now, but I call him a citizen of the world. He, uh, he's, uh, been a longtime friend and a, and a Dharma mentor for me. And, uh, he'll be the person engaging with us for most of the class. Um, but just briefly, he works as a school teacher in Austin. He has monastic training. Um, if you haven't heard his Way Seeking Mind talk, you should look it up on the Appamata website. Um, as I say, he's a, he works as a school teacher now, uh, helping students learn how they can discover scientific and logical print principles by opening their eyes and minds to the world, to the world around them. Uh, I love hearing about his teaching methods. Um, John, just so that you get an idea, I want to actually call on people and what I want to do is call on people by their first name. And if you would respond, uh, turn off mute on your computer, and you might want to do that now. Uh, and just briefly say your full name and where you are located, because I think there are only two people in the Austin area connected today. <laughs> so Nancy, would you go first? Uh, I'm Nancy Lee. I'm in um, Mishawaka, Indiana. Thank you, Nancy. And Pam? I'm Pam Suggs. I am in Thousand Oaks, California. Thank you. Ahsoka? Hi, I'm Ahsoka. I am, and I'm in Scotland. Thank you. And uh, Elizabeth? Oh my gosh, the order is changing on the rows of, uh, after people speak, the order changes on the row. <laughs> looking at to keep track. So, uh, Elizabeth. Um, I'm Elizabeth Sublette, and I'm in Austin. Thank you. Uh, Becky. My name is Becky, and I live in Vancouver, British Columbia in, in Canada. Thank you. Ed. Hi, I'm Ed Sanchez. I'm on the island of Kauai in the state of Hawaii. Thank you. Francis. Name is Francis. I'm in Fayetteville, Arkansas, in Northwest Arkansas. Thank you. Susan Kaderka, or Susan, I, you say your last name. Susan, Susan Kaderka, John, we know, we know each other. I'm in Austin, Texas. Thank you. And Claudine. Uh, I'm Claudine Booth and I live in Switzerland. Thank you. 
And uh, Lisa Kuntz, where are you? Hi, I'm Lisa Kuntz and I live in Portland, Oregon, formerly from Austin, where I started practicing at Appomattox. Um, Shelly? I am Shelly Winton. I'm in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And inevitably, I've forgotten somebody would, in this shifting list. Anyone else who did not get a chance to speak? No. Nelly, thank you. There you are. I am Nelly. I live in Avila, near Madrid, in Spain. Thank you. Okay, well, before I introduce John any further and before he begins, I have a couple of remarks I want to make. I know from conversations that John and I have had, including an, a, a text exchange from this morning, which I didn't respond to until a few minutes ago, uh, that he has, I'm looking forward to his presentation. But when I, what I want to talk about is something that, uh, you know, we're talking about the 10th precept. Uh, and that is to not disparage the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, right? And um, a lot of people, I, I've read a number of books about this, and there's there's various ideas about it and various ways of presenting it. Uh, of course, uh, Diane Rossetto doesn't even uh, cover it in, in um, her book. She just skips right over it. And a number of other teachers uh, give the precepts short shrift and don't really engage with it that much. Um, I I have something in mind that that just came to me this morning because I participated in an extraordinary ceremony that was organized by uh, Robin Bradford and Laurie Winnett at um, at Appamata. I'm here in Albuquerque. That's the trail, the East Fork of the Hemas River Trail that I was on yesterday afternoon, very beautiful spot. Uh, but I was participating online and there were about 20, 25 other people online and about a similar number in the Zendo. So quite a turnout for this ceremony. Um, and um, they framed the, the ceremony talking about the way that grief can affect our lives and about the countless sources of grief, personal, global, societal, through war and famine, through the loss of relationships and the people around us, through the loss of our own capacities, through illness and aging and uh, all the changes that happen to us. And they invited participants to do something that is part of the Zen funerals that I have uh, taken part in. I, I don't know all of the ceremonies, of course, but the ones that I've taken part in, the person for whom the ceremony is being held, that is the, the, the person who has lost someone, is invited to directly address that person. And in this case, they what they suggested was that people write their thoughts down, not as a third person narrative, but as a direct address to the person that they were most missing or to the, or, or the persons or the, uh, the those uh, that they that they most felt the grief for. Write it out on a piece of paper, put that piece of paper up on a specially constructed altar. And um, and while people were writing, uh, Kim Mosley, who was the timekeeper this morning, rang the bell 108 times. 
<clears throat> that's very emotional for me. Um, I had plenty of things that I was writing about to, to uh, about my own grief, and most of them were very personal and very, you know, focused on my own loss. Uh, but the the bell striking, it just it, it came to me that it it's a kind of a shock to hear the bell struck over and over again. That it's a that it's a blow that comes out of nowhere, and it's a celebration that doesn't last long enough as the sound fades away. You know. <clears throat> um, many people then came up to the altar and read or, or spoke what they had written or, or more uh, about their losses. Uh, some spoke to war and the, you know, of course, the, the presence of war in uh, Gaza and Israel now and in Ukraine and other places. Uh, and, and of course, many spoke of their own personal losses that they had had. Um, and they were held in compassion by the people who were listening. And there were many tears shed, of course, as you can imagine. Uh, and, um, and then later, the participants gathered outside and burned the pieces of paper that they had written on. Well, the people online did a ceremonial disengagement with the 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 writing that they had written the, the thoughts that they had put down on paper and there was chanting and bowing uh from the from the traditional chant book and and again what mattered was the connection among the people who were there and the people what they were sharing and what they were the way that they had cracked open and let things out that that had been they'd been holding for so long and uh, what I want to say is that I was reminded of the story of Kiso Gotami, which I think is, at least for me, the most moving of all the Buddhist stories. And I have a feeling that the story of Kiso Gotami was, in fact, a folktale uh, in the culture that got folded into Buddhist literature. I have no, no reason to think that, except it's, it's just a surmise that I had. Um, um, Kisogotami, uh, I think from her last name that she might have been related to the Buddha, whose last name was, or whose family name was Gotama. And there were others who had the last name, or the surname Gotami, who were, who had married into the family. So in some versions of the story, she was a poor woman who had married into an upper class family. Again, it might have been the Buddha's own family. Um, and um, in some versions, her family, her husband's family looks down on her and does not accept her fully until she bears a son, which she eventually does. Kisa Gotami's son, a toddler, dies suddenly without explanation. She's grief, grief stricken and snatches up his body and runs to the neighbor's houses, seeking someone that can help revive him. And this becomes, as this becomes more futile, and uh, and you know, as as her grief and fear deepen, she um, doubles down and she continues doing it. In, the, in some versions of the story, the people she meets mock her and say, "Get over it. Everybody dies. You know, you just you're nothing special. Get over it." 
And this, this does not stop her. And then eventually someone directs her to the Buddha. She meets the Buddha. And in the famous story, he says, I can revive him if you bring me a mustard seed from a house in this town where no one has experienced death. And so she goes, she's still carrying her child. She goes from door to door and she asks for a mustard seed. And she asks if anyone has died in this house. And eventually comes, she comes back to the Buddha and she says, I don't have any mustard seeds. Everybody has had somebody die in their house. <clears throat> to me, this is the Buddha fully coming into his teaching role. He leads Kisagatami to connect in grief with the grief woven into the lives of every single person she knows. To me, this is the beginning of the Dharma, not as abstract ideas about interconnectedness and constant change, but written into the fabric of the life we share with every living being. The Dharma is that we get sick and age and die. Worse, the Dharma that we cannot protect those we love. And it's the beginning of Sangha. We are united in this grief. So thanks for listening to that. John, welcome. Thank you so much for being willing to connect with us today and to help us engage with this precept. Yeah, thank you for the heartfelt introduction. I was thinking of you all this morning, um, though I was not able to make it to the ceremony. So it's heartening to hear that it was everything I suspected it it would be. Um, hello, everybody. Um, it's so nice to see a handful of faces of Lisa, long time no see, uh, of some folks that I'm familiar with and haven't seen in a while and and plenty of new faces as well so I'm really glad to have this opportunity to speak to everyone um technical matter quickly I might want to be sharing my screen I don't know do I have power if I don't have power to do that if that could be extended um Joel thank you for asking me to come and talk about this 10th precept um which for me is is a doozy um, and one of all of them that I've probably, until I was asked to, to come say a few words about it today, um, have probably given the least uh, sort of concrete time to, to thinking about um, and hardly noticed that that was the case. It, it's a way that it kind of feels like a, a bit of a just sort of throwaway coda to the end of all these other um, much more tangible and straightforward um, precepts. So uh, I've personally come to learn a lot in the process, and I hope some of the things I have to say um, will set some of you on a, on a similar path to develop a relationship to this precept as well. Um, so why don't I, I'll just share my screen here, and we can take a look at the precept. So I've, uh, I've put a few um versions of it here at the top of the page um 
after a quote from Suzuki Roshi that I think is going to set the tone for, for where I'm trying to take this conversation, which is Suzuki Roshi says, Buddhism starts from these three refuges and ends with these three refuges. So today we're really kind of focusing on the end. And to do that, we're going to be reaching back to the beginning. Um, the version of this precept that I'm most familiar with is the, the first one here. Um, I vow not to disparage the three treasures. I vow not to disparage the three treasures. And here I've put with it um, a verse that is read during the full moon ceremony, which is a monthly precept, uh, traditional precept ceremony where the Sangha gathers to reaffirm their commitment to the precepts. And Dogen has these wonderful sort of, you know, characteristically mysterious uh, capping phrases that he gives with each precept. And this one has always just touched me deeply. It says, I vow not to disparage the three treasures. To expound the Dharma with this body is foremost. The virtue returns to the ocean of reality. It is unfathomable. We just accept it with respect and gratitude. Um, the Los Angeles uh, Zen Center translates it, tenth, not speaking ill of the three treasures. Um, I, su I, I suspect this is a more literal, literal translation and one that I'm not able to, to do as much with. If anyone understands, let me know. Expounding the Dharma with the body is a harbor and a fish pool. The virtues return to the ocean of reality. You should not comment on them. Just hold them and serve them. And finally, this is from the Zen Mountain Center um, in upstate New York. Experience the intimacy of things. Do not defile the three treasures. Um, so as, as Joel said, and as I'm sure some of you have noticed, um, this precept is just not in Rosetto's book. Um, there are several other precept commentaries that I've come across that make a similar move. They, the precept is either left, left out um, or just kind of acknowledged in a very cursory manner. Um, so before I say too much more about why I think that might be the case and how we might uh, meet this, I'm curious, number one, um, any initial impressions of this precept? Just how does this how does this hit you without thinking about it too much? Um, and number two, if you have any sense or you want to put forward any ideas about why it would be the case that this precept is often kind of left left aside, go ahead and just jump right in or raise a hand. I don't know how we usually do things here. So um, the first thing that came to my mind when I was reading this is that it's... Um, it's it's an urging to um you know respond to things that are challenging by uh criticizing them or by start you know so so it's a way of so and i see this as, uh, particularly thinking about not disparaging the sangha or you know just an effort to kind of avoid the natural tendency of organizations and communities to pick at one another or whatever you know just to sort of engage in that and it's an it's a it's an urging to sort of re refrain from that and kind of um accept you know the all of the complexities of the 
of the community or of the teachings or, or whatever with um, it, it just to make a decision to take them in rather than to kind of um, react to them. So that's how it struck me is just oh. to avoid reactivity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate that. I was talking with a Dharma friend of mine last week and they brought up a similar point. They're like, I, it feels like it's kind of about like benefit of the doubt. You know, like rising up to meet the challenge of something that you can't maybe wrap your head around right now, rather than take the easy way out and just start poking and criticizing. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Ed. Aloha, John. Um, I guess my response is more of a question. Um, is it perhaps not uh, the fact that this isn't as prominently discrete a precept because the things that are in there are items that are covered through the other precepts, uh, maybe not explicitly, but by um, studying and following the other precepts, all of these things in one way or another, I believe, get touched. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, we're going to take a quick look at um, a piece that Peg wrote on this uh, precept a few years back, and she makes the same point. She makes the same point that this is kind of like a, a capping of to to kind of reflect back onto the precepts that have come before and sort of restate them in this kind of holistic holistic way. So I agree that would be that makes a lot of sense. Um Shelly. Kind of seems like the container. Hmm. This precept like... is the container for the, all the others. Mm-hmm. I mean, we often don't talk about the containers. Mhm. Mhm. I agree. I agree. Yeah, the Suzuki Roshi point really points us in that direction too, right? Buddhism starts from these three refuges and ends with these three refuges. Um, and just as a quick, a quick note, as I'm speaking today, I'm probably going to say three refuges, three treasures, three jewels, triple treasure, triple refuge. There's a hundred names for these. Um, they're all going to be in reference to the three refuges. Um. Okay, so I thought it'd be a good idea to to maybe just look at some quick definitions of of disparage. Um, Cambridge Dictionary says to criticize someone or something in a way that shows you do not respect or value him, her, or it. And Merriam-Webster, to belittle the importance or value of someone or something, to speak slightingly about someone or something. So... um, the second wording of it here really stands out to me because it 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 really makes it about speech, a precept of speech, um, which is I you know I don't disagree with, but I think it's a little more broader than that. Generally, this precept is taken as one of the pure mind precepts. Um, the last three, I think, the last four precepts are precepts mostly of the body. Then you have three that are mostly about speech, and then these final three are often understood to be uh, about mind. Um, so I, in this talk, I don't want to limit it to, to, to speaking ill will, but really kind of harboring, um, this and, uh, being disparaging in even more subtle ways, possibly. So, um, Peg, I just kind of grabbed a a brief, a brief outline of her, her talk, which I recommend everybody reads if you haven't yet. It's, um, posted on the precepts, uh, page at, on the Appamata website. Um, and she essentially makes the point, it's, I think this top quote really hits it. When you deny your own Buddhahood, you diminish yourself and create a crippling set of limitations that you then live by. 
When you deny the Buddhahood of others, you are simply failing to recognize their true nature. Right? So in this case, to, to, to disparage the Buddha would be to disparage self and others in any way. Right? And in that sense, exactly like Ed said, it's really kind of a rephrasing of this uh, precept about disparagement that you've already looked at. Similarly, um, there's what she calls the like the obvious sense of the um, not disparaging the second of the three jewels, the Dharma, being, you know, not to disparage the teachings themselves in a very straightforward way. But then Peg reminds us as well that that the Dharma has a broader sense and means um, phenomena in general in Buddhist philosophy, right? And so she broadens this out as well, too, to, to having a, a disparaging attitude really towards anything that you meet in your life. Um, and third, with the Sangha. Um, she says we are connected intimately with each other in our small Sangha, and we are connected more widely with other sitting groups around the world, with Zen with all Zen Buddhists, with our families and friends and colleagues, and in a larger way, with all beings. These relationships are not to be dismissed or disparaged. They're the very connections we need in order to survive and thrive. Yet we constantly pick and choose, defining some relationships as more important and becoming impatient or critical of others. Even every being in our lives is our teacher. And every single one is deserving of our respect and care. Um, I found this this take on this precept very um, straightforward and 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 heartening. Um, does anyone have any any questions or comments about Peg's uh, initial take before we move on and complicate things? Um, great. So I'll I'll pause occasionally, but I would really love to be as interactive as possible. So please don't hold back. Um, just coming off mute and jump in the conversation uh, if you'd like to make a comment or question. So after reading um, after reading Pegs, I I really started thinking about because um, she does she makes this point that I brought up in the last paragraph, which I haven't quoted, which is that these are kind of a restatement, right? Of of um, precepts that have come before. And I got really curious about like, okay, well, what is it maybe about this precept that is, that does stand on its own, right? That goes a little bit beyond um, a restatement. Um, and that's what I'm going to try to uh, share with you now, sort of what I came to find um, in that department. So to begin, um, and I don't think Rosetto, I should, her book's in the other room, I should have it with me. I don't believe Rosetto starts the precept book with taking refuge. Um, the first three precepts of the 16 Bodhisattva precepts traditionally are to take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And during our precept ceremony, uh, for those of you who choose to, to possibly sew and go forward with that, the ceremony begins with with refuges. Right? It, you take your refuges before you take the precepts. Um, and so this is a quote from Reb Anderson. It says, now is a good time to remember that receiving and practicing these great precepts emerges from adoration of the triple treasure. 
The three refuge are the foundation of precept practice and all bodhisattva vows. Not disparaging the triple treasure is at the heart of the practice of bodhisattvas who live for the welfare of others. Um, Suzuki Roshi, likewise, let me change my screen share here, also discusses this um, in a talk that he gave. So Suzuki Roshi is commenting on um, a work called Shushogi that is a um, kind of a collection of Dogen's essential teachings. And Shushogi says, Dogen says, we should revere the three treasures and make offerings to them. Veneration of the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha is in accordance with the precept handed down from the Buddha in India and transmitted through the ancestors in China. He goes on to say, to take refuge in the triple treasure, it is necessary to have pure faith. Pure faith includes our mental, physical, and verbal effort. It is not enough just to think something or say something superficial to have faith. Pure faith means not just faith in something, but real action. For pure faith, it is necessary to have real practice. So um, I think part of my, if I have a, a thesis here, um, something that I was thinking about as I was preparing was I wonder how much of a coincidence it is that this precept is often not spoken of when uh, at the heart of it, there's there's there seems to be something really important about ideas of faith and devotion and adoration, right? Three things that I think a lot of us associate with religion, but not in a necessarily positive light. How do we think about faith in Buddhism? How often do we talk about faith in our Zen practice? Um, to me, uh, it, these notions often bring up a lot of feelings and they're quite difficult to address and to talk about. And yet Dogen's teaching and Suzuki Roshi's teaching that are so foundational to, to, I think what we've received, um, really emphasizes this deep, deeply that it is through this triple adoration that we become disciples of the Buddha, uh, Shelley. I think that this first line at the top where mm -hmm. you had it, we take refuge in Buddha because he is the great teacher mm -hmm. is not about adoring him as a separate. Mm -hmm. It's about becoming Buddha's Buddha nature. Mm -hmm. And it is his example that we are adoring, not him. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Because then we're just like, if we're giving our power away then to be Buddha nature. Mm -hmm. Okay. That's that how it lands for me. Giving our power away. I like that. I want to, I want to come back to that. Um, Becky. Uh, one of, one of the reasons I have found Buddhism and being bodhisattva, something that is an absolute fit for me is that as I explored spiritually through very many places in my youth, uh, one of the things I never understood was how 
how people could how people could uh, worship oh. a a god that wanted to be worshipped, mm-hmm. and and so that that one just kept not fitting for me at all. Uh, and in some of the ways that things have either been understood or translated in, in terms of, of what we're working with, um, the idea that, that there is a personal level of connection that, that we want intervention or you know, that kind of thing, uh-huh. Uh, that sometimes creeps into some of the language of what we have here. And I don't, I mean, I don't think that the way I hear and feel it, it isn't that. Uh-huh. So, um, yeah, I, I think that this one is is absolutely basic. Mm. Uh, yes, yes. Uh-huh. I, think, I think it's absolutely so, but that it's that in some ways you have to take put your toes in all the rest of them a little bit before you can really feel that uh, and on the other hand the first time one experiences sangha really experiences it deeply in our body and and heart you know that that then it's obvious that's that's basic that's basic yeah basic as in like simple direct self-evidently significant yes yes Mm -hmm. thanks becky lisa okay i have a few thoughts on this that maybe maybe we'll come together as i'm talking Mm -hmm. Uh, the first one has to do with hold on i need to close with adoration Mm. and i think for many of us, as you suggested, it's a very loaded word, like the adoration of the Magi. And yet, looking up here from the Oxford Dictionary, adoration, the first, as a noun, the first definition is very simple, deep love and respect. And I think um, we tend to imbue those words deep love and respect, we tend to add extra things to them. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, we do talk about love beyond emotion, right? Mm. Love beyond, I mean, that's years ago when I first came to Akamata, I copied, it was a heart shape, and it was talk, love beyond emotion. It's like the consistency, it's the, um, it's devotion in a way. It's not love based on emotion. Mm. It's not like romantic love. Mm. It's a kind of love that we experience actually in Sangha when we meet each other with compassion. It's a whole different aspect of love that can be expressed, you know, with our bot, with not turning away, with meeting others. And also, in the case of the adoration of the Buddha, it's a kind of respect 
I don't think, I mean, I have to wonder about the translation of this. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I don't know whether a word we, I think the word adoration is tainted in our society. Mm -hmm. um, because the reality is that we're already not exactly setting the Buddha apart, but we are because we name the Buddha. We wish to be, you know, embodied um, the ways of the Buddha. Mm. And that takes us to a whole nother level mm. of an orientation. To me, the adoration is an orientation. It's not uh it's not, I don't know. What about when we do our bows? We're surrendering. You know, this adoration is letting go of, I think, some of our egotistic beliefs, our okay. separateness. I don't know. I could go on, but that's kind of the way I took I took off on it. Mm -hmm. it takes us to a new place. That's very resonant uh, for me, Lisa. Um, and I think... Um, to me, this precept is very much wrapped up in sincerity and yeah. giving rise to respect and expressions of love and and in doing so becoming like who is the one who, who who loves, you know, who is the one that is capable of adoration in in maybe a healthy way that doesn't come with all that baggage, right? And so we started this conversation, Susan, you know, reading that precept and saying, like, I think it's about kind of this, like, there's a, I'll, I'll paraphrase, there's kind of a benefit of the doubt piece in here, right? Like a, a relinquishment of a certain uh, nitpicking or um, criticizing on the basis of our own views. I think that's important. And I think it's going to be um, important to the conversation we're about to have here, because when you look at the teachings on this on this uh, precept, there's a lot of these kind of call them loaded words or concepts that we might not feel as comfortable with in the domain of faith and adoration and devotion and these kind of things. So my request is like, let's just for the next 45 minutes, like see if we can find a way into like a way of being that this might be kind of trying to point us in the direction of. Um, Lisa, I like, I think here, this, these paragraphs might get a little bit to the flavor of what you're saying. Suzuki Roshi says, we say adoration, but just to adore Buddha is like a, a dream. It means nothing. Adoration should follow some actual practice or guidance. There needs to be activity. There needs to be, um, uh, a way of responding that is expressive of that, of that adoration. So let's, uh, okay. So what this does is I think it, it essentially takes us back to the beginning, which is the three refuges. Um, because I think the teachings on this precept are gonna are essentially boil down to taking refuge is essential. It is the foundation from which precept practice flows. And to be in a place where one is disparaging the triple treasure is to be in a place where you are you are kind of cut off from that refuge. And in being cut off from that refuge, 
cut off from the the foundation and like the real movement of this practice okay um so uh before we get back to uh this precept i want to talk about just the, the the three treasures a little bit um the three treasures are there are many 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 ways of understanding them there are many levels from very conventional understandings of what buddha dharma sangha are to uh very religious and cosmic understandings of what they are the essence though is that they're all just one thing and we are turning this 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 jewel of ways that we can relate to these three treasures so i just wanted to offer a few a few ways that um, some teachers that some of us are familiar with have talked about them so uh okamura roshi um says when we take refuge in the three treasures buddha dharma sangha the buddha is the one who awakened to reality the dharma is reality itself the way things truly are the sangha are the people who aspire to study and living in accord with the teachings of the reality of all beings dogen keeps it real simple we take refuge in the buddha because he's the great teacher we take refuge in the dharma because it is good medicine and we take refuge in the Sangha because it is an excellent friend. Um, Suzuki Roshi talks about three interpretations of the three treasures and the sort of oneness of the three. If you want to look into that, uh, there's Genzo Sambo, which is the manifested three treasures. The Itai Sambo, which is one body, three treasures. This is a very philosophical way of thinking of the three treasures. And Juji Sambo, which is the cultural three treasures, which just boils down to like, well, the Sangha is the people who go to the temple and the Dharma are the books that are there and the Buddha is the statue on the altar. It covers this wide range from very concrete um, to uh, deeply religious. Um, I was going to look at another paper. Um, I can maybe put a link after the class. Um, a teacher um, who I really respect, Kokyo Henkel, um, has an excellent document that he made that really kind of lines up many of these varied ways that the three treasures are um, are thought of. Um, it's really, it's worth uh, taking a look. So Reb Anderson uh, says, when I take refuge in Buddha, I don't take refuge in my good points or my skillful behavior. And of course, I don't take refuge in my shortcomings. I take refuge in me being me. That is my indestructible virtue, which never is lost except by me forgetting it or not facing up to it. To take refuge means to give up running away from home. It means to recognize my responsibility to live in accord with my Buddhahood. Okay. And he then talks about Dogen and Dogen's take on this. And he says, Dogen taught that the triple treasure is unfathomable. And he encourages us to receive it with the utmost devotion and respect. Caring for the triple treasure means to have the utmost respect and devotion for all living beings. One who truly receives these bodhisattva precepts feels profound gratitude for the opportunity to meet, receive, study, and practice these sublime teachings. The devoted practitioner of these precepts inevitably comes to treasure them as the most valuable resources of the wonderful work of benefiting beings. So those are just a few views of um, what the function of this like initial taking refuge, uh, 
how how it's the foundation of of these precepts. And now we'll get back to um, not disparaging and think about some some we'll go back to Reb for some ideas on this. Reb Anderson, uh, for those who don't know, is a contemporary um, Zen teacher. He's a student of Suzuki Roshi and a, a head teacher out at San Francisco Zen Center, who I've had the great fortune to do some study with. So he says, um, let's see, the original Chinese character translated here as disparage could also be translated as slander, dishonor, revile, or censor. Our self-centered human thought is inexorably predisposed to censor, expurgate, distort, and disparage reality. Our self-centered perceptions naturally limit and lessen the vast interconnected complexity of reality. Any speech or action that limits, obstructs, or reduces in esteem the wondrous grandeur of the infinite triple treasure goes against the spirit of this precept. Okay. So to kind of get to where uh, Reb wants to take us next and what I'd like to spend some time reflecting on before we maybe kind of break up into some small groups and discuss a little bit is um, a, a teaching, an idea that's, that's very central um, in the Soto Zen world called Kano Doko. Kano Doko. And that is translated something like uh, mystical communion, spiritual resonance, uh, inconceivable communication. Um, and in the context of the three treasures, Dogen says the act of taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha is achieved through mystical communion. Whether you are in a deva realm, let's say like a god realm, human realm, hell realm, hungry ghost realm, or animal realm, when you have mystical communion with Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, you invariably take refuge in them. Right. So this is this is this is where I'm asking folks to keep an open mind, right? Because right at the core of this is some kind of mystical communication, is the proposition here. And what that could mean for our lives and our, our, our practice is what I hope we can we can get into here. Um, here's Reb talking about this idea of Kanodoko as well. The meaning of saying I take refuge in Buddha is not the words, but it responds to our devotion in saying these words. If our devotion is total, if we give our whole lives to being awake, then there will be a complete response. Awakening will be realized. If we devote our entire lives to the Dharma, then the teachings of awakening will come alive. And if we dedicate our whole being to the Sangha, the community of all beings, then the community will appear in this world. This is the meaning of the jewel mirror awareness. It clearly reflects our devotion, whether our efforts are partial or total. In this realm, we get back exactly what we give. When we hold back from awakening, it may seem that awakening holds back from us. Even as reflection on our holding back as spiritual communion. The song of the jewel mirror awareness, this is something we chant at Apamata, also says that, quote, appeal and response come up together. 
In the realm of this intimate communion, we don't appeal now and get a response layer later. Past and future are cut off, which means they're completely present. So to summarize the teaching of Kanodoko as I understand it, and it's really pervasive once you start to notice it, um, it's essentially that, that the Buddha Dharma Sangha, that which is beyond our small conception of ourselves, responds immediately to the degree of sincerity and devotion we bring to the acts of our lives. So, for example, Rev's teaching about zazen is that it's the sincerity, it's the expression of great sincerity and great devotion that calls the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas to rise up and carry us along this path of awakening. And just to give you a few examples of where we see this, there's a wonderful, another sutra we chant um, called the Ehe Koso Hotsuganmon, which I thought we might chant at the end of class today. Um, the Heart Sutra itself, if you pay attention to the, de the details, says, for example, with nothing to attain, the Bodhisattva relies on Prajnaparamita and thus the mind is without hindrance. Prajnaparamita ends up being this mantra that we chant, right? There's a dimension of this that is beyond like analytically understanding uh, emptiness. It is calling forth this great mantra. It is relying upon Prajnaparamita. The hymn to the perfection of wisdom that we chant every day, every day, is an, it's an homage, homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy, the perfection of wisdom gives light. I don't do light. I don't do perfection of wisdom. I'm not so smart that I get perfection of wisdom. Prajnaparamita, this like in this personified deity, right? is called upon to like come to us, help us. Suzuki Roshi, when asked, well, what does it mean when we offer incense? He just said, it's, it's asking the Buddha to come. Likewise, the jewel near Samadhi, this text I referred to a second ago, famously says the meaning is not in the words, yet it responds to the inquiring impulse. This is a poem about like the this immediacy of of request and response, right? Um, here's Dogen talking, or sorry, Reb talking about it again in the context of Zazen. He says, Zazen practice is selfless. Its meaning, the enlightenment and liberation of all living beings is not brought forth by the power of personal effort and is not brought forth by the power of some other. We can't do it by ourselves and nobody else can do it for us. The meaning is realized interactively in the context of our wholehearted effort. As the Jewel Mary Samadhi says, the inquiry and response come up together. The meaning arises at the same moment as our devotion to the ceremony. So I'm not going to read all these, but again and again and again, the instruction from these teachers is about wholeheartedness. It's about sincerity. It's about devotion. And it's about some kind of faith in uh, giving oneself in that way that you th there will be a response, that you will be supported, that you will be met. 
I would like to hear impressions. Yeah, Lisa. Um, so all of our chants, all of our studies, um, lean towards our practice being an embodied practice. All those words lead toward an embodied practice. Okay. Our practice is to some extent experiential. Mm -hmm. All all of the academic um you know studies and writings and history it really they add depth, they add embellishments, but they all lead to the same thing. Hmm. What we aspire to is an embodied practice. Hmm. And if you took away all of a lot of these words like devotion, ad adoration, and commitment, mm -hmm. once again, um, it'd be really interesting. Would it be possible to study and observe people who, in an embodied way, expressed all of the principles of the precepts and Buddhism without those words, without having, um, let me see, I don't know if I'm explaining myself well, mm -hmm. but it's not, it's what the words point to. Sure. Well, embodied practice could also point to the words, our chants that we try to internalize. Does that make any sense? They're so deeply interactive and integrated. At some point, they become self-fulfilling, self-acting. I mean, that's what we're after, really. Hmm. You know, it becomes a habitual way of being in the world. Hmm. But it develops from... It develops from having a greater embodied understanding at different levels. That that's all I wanted to say. But to me, there's really a lot there. Mm -hmm. There's that's a it. there's a ton there. I, I agree with you completely. Um, I think I left it out of my little list of quotes here. But Suzuki Roshi, um, a little bit further down from what we read a minute ago, makes it very clear. He's like the the actualization of these precepts is in is in yeah. the body of a of a practitioner. You know, words, 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 words. And then at the end of the day, it's in the body. And so what I'm hoping we get to and really are reflecting on or thinking about this precept is like exactly that. So like, what is, what is it to embody, enact, express um, whatever it is that these, these teachings around wholeheartedness and devotion and commitment are pointing to? You know, it's fairly easy, I think, when I'm studying the precept of um, being truthful, right? It's pretty concrete, like what I'm looking for and how to work with that and how to be more forthcoming and truthful in my life. I think it's it's trickier, at least for me, to really wrap my head around what is this pointing to in this concrete embodied form. Um, and I hope that's what we're all thinking about today.
Yeah, well, it, we, it ends up we're in a pro, an embodied process, mm. an embodied, ever-changing process. And, you know, it's like what we're doing right now that um, that makes the process, it brings it, it actualizes it. Well, mm. oh. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thanks, Lisa. Uh, Shelly? I just want to name that as you were going through the quotes, I, I could just really hear Flint in my head saying, mm. how how simple are you willing to let this be? Mm. And I, mm. I think what you're talking about is really having, uh, at first we do the practice and then the practice comes through us. Mm. We, we aren't doing it. Mm. So I, I guess, you know, if there's um, a claim or a request here, it's that we consider this precept in, in the light of, of like what it means to be wholehearted, what it means to um, hold something in, with respect and love. And I think to disparage, it could really just be defined as anything that that undermines that kind of open, loving, respectful relationship. Um, so I have put together a couple prompts, little writing prompts. I thought what we might do is uh, we're getting a little low. We st we end at two thirty. Yeah. Um, we're getting a little low on time. I thought we would um, think on and write on these a little bit and then get into small groups, but I think it might be good if we all just took maybe 10 minutes to just do some reflective writing and then come back and discuss and, and do some sharing. Um, so I put forth a couple passages with some questions that you can please take as recommendations. Um, and do as much, you know, you can think about the first one or the second one or both. Um, I, these are just some, some ideas for, for reflection. And I chose what to me are some of the stickier dimensions of this, right? This kind of mystical communion stuff and this idea of refuge being like inextricably kind of wound up in an idea of faith. So it's 2.13 now. Let's come back in about um, 10 minutes. And uh, I look forward to hearing what you have to say. And I'll be here too if anybody wants to converse in the in, via chat. All right. Um, Maybe find a natural stopping or pausing place. Um, so I was thinking about number one and Shelly, what you said earlier really resonated with me. Um, Flint's uh, teaching that I've heard many times as well of like, how simple can you let this be? I think that might just be another way to say this, right? Like, when I can't just let it be, it's usually some part of me thinks that it's me that has to take care of everything. I've got to calculate my next move. I've got to 
hold my body in a better posture. I've got to go down my checklist of what I'm going to be teaching that day, right? There's something about unsettledness being related to um, a lack of confidence that like my life will be fine if I just drop it, you know? And so like real, like Shikantaza, real just sitting to me is a potent expression of faith and all of its simplicity. I'd love to hear from anyone else. Marla. Um, so devotion to something doesn't mean the same thing to me um, as being devoted to it. Hmm. Um, for example, in Peg's writing, uh, and this is the thing about it that just grabbed me by the throat because I had never thought about this precept in this way before. She said that to disparage the three treasures is to disparage yourself. And to me, I, I thought about the parallel in pop psychology um, where, you know, it's the old, well, you can't love someone else until you, you can't love someone else until you love yourself. Mm. Yeah. And um to have devotion to yourself is not some weird or egotistical thing necessarily it's to be devoted to yourself because you're buddha i love myself and i honor myself because i am buddha and this is the action of faith and devotion this is the triple treasure this is the embodied thing this is it coming alive mm. yeah and as you really like just let yourself fall into that kind of devotion as you put it to like say self as Buddha as a starting place, as I'm trying to take better care, as I'm trying to more fully express this love and be <laughs> sensitive to the causes and conditions that I'm working in and that are affecting my life. And it really then unfolds to the Dharma of phenomena and to the people around me that is my Sangha. And those three treasures kind of start to collapse on themselves and their interrelatedness, you know, that can just come right from like taking care of this taking care of this um thank you susan um so uh i really love the phrase mystical communion uh but i've been thinking uh throughout this about language and about the um inadequacy in a way of language you know that we're all getting tripped up i mean we all do this not just in this venue but getting tripped up on uh on language and kind of the meaning that's attached to certain words. And, and it really is sort of a yearning towards or a kind of reaching towards something that, that there aren't really any words for, you know? So, so my, I guess my feeling about this whole discussion is that I'm just really aware of the limitations of language to, um, you know, but I sort of love the effort, you know, I, I love, yeah. I mean, it feels like a very necessary, it's a, wholly inadequate but also very necessary effort of of sort of trying to put form or trying to um you know kind of assemble some sort of meaning around something that is really so mysterious and ineffable so uh, anyway i don't know if that's a very direct answer to the question but that's oh, what totally. i love it um yeah and i think again i think what these teachings are about in kind of a functional sense is like so many of the Zen teachings are about just what you said, obviously, right? Like 
everything has a certain way it presents and then it has this ineffable depth and we are somehow we are living our lives in um dogan has a a, a metaphor he uses at some point of like striding across the bottom of the ocean like your head is above and you can see what's going on but like you are being moved and affected by all this stuff underneath the surface and so like how do we uh fully like acknowledge and move forward on the basis of this like radical like beyond comprehensionness of things um and i feel like these teachings are are one way that this tradition kind of tries to to get to that. So I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. Denise. Um, in these 10 minutes, I was um, letting the sentence, you know, just ring the bell with your whole heart out into the great whatever it is. I just love this sentence. And in a way, it's a bit when before we mentioned the um, uh, how simple can we let it be? And that's, for me, one of the answers. Okay. Just, there's a bell, just take up the stick and ring the bell. Yep. And a sound will come and the sound will go away. And just show up. Okay. And I don't know, but it really, this sentence opened up something in me. Wonderful, wonderful. Yeah. yeah, and that sound will come back and touch you. It's such a concrete metaphor for this kind of giving and receiving that happens. And, uh, you know, a, a personal note, um, I love monastic practice. I feel so grateful to have gotten to practice in really formal settings. And part of the beauty of it is that, like, the whole operation of monastic life is that. Just ring the bell with your whole heart into the great whatever it is. When it's time to go to the zendo, we go to the zendo. Totally it's time to bow we bow just only and fully and i think the reason that that's the practice is tied up in this this wholeheartedness you know this directness just giving yourself to whatever you're doing i'm i'm, I'm glad that touched you that's my favorite line on this page too lisa um so just pause real quick uh it is 2 30 i want to respect everybody's time um i also want to hear from lisa um, so I would say if y'all want to, we can end now and I'd be happy to hang out for another five or 10 minutes with anybody who wants to, to chat or has some questions or comments. Um, but I would like to, in the name of just honoring the boundaries of time, thank everybody right now for letting me come and do my best to try to express uh, a little something about this precept. Um, and if you need to go, please do. And if you ever want to talk in the future, my email is not hard to find. And those of you that want to stay, let's hang out. You know, so I don't have to speak, actually. It's relative. I have to, but I'd love when you, I like when you say things. Well, I'll just make it. I'm not good at keeping it simple. But, uh, Susan, I think it's like what really uh, spoke to me was. Um, the mystical and the, I've forgotten what it was, and the spiritual aspect, what I would call the numinous aspect, because I've had, over my lifetime, I've had experiences that just really stuck with me. Uh, when I was growing up in Taiwan, there were many temples, 
that may have been Buddhist temples, they may have been Shinto, the temples had a tremendous effect on me. I mean, I just felt it in my gut. When I visited Korea, South Korea, 40 years ago, one thing that happened uh, was my daughter and I were visiting a temple and a monk, a road monk, came out of a part of the temple. I think there might've been a bell, probably the wooden bells involved. And he strode, glided, floated purposefully and mindfully across this raised walkway to another part of the temple. And I mean, even talking about it, it just, my heart just kind of stopped. Um, it it was so real. When I described it to Flint once, he said, yes, she knew it was true. Hmm? But I was far away from this monk, and yet he exuded some kind of presence that truly moved me. Um, there's others. Those experiences stick with me. Uh, I, I visited Father Damien's uh, church in Kalapapa. And even though I didn't know about a lot about Father Damien at the time, it I, I felt an experience of awe. Okay, so the way that connects to devotion and faith is for me, it's so much working backwards. It's like, what is this? You've ever read The Hunger Artist years ago, Kafka story? Yeah, yeah. Always looking. And that's how uh, practices felt to me, to me. I was always had this hunger, horrible, insatiable hunger for something, but I couldn't find, I didn't know what I wanted to mm -hmm. eat. That makes sense? Mm -hmm. And eating was practice. Mm -hmm. But all those experiences... <laughs> I write better than I, but all those experiences, these numerous experiences, it's led to, oh, and this is what I want. Mm -hmm. And it's where all these teachings point to. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, Lisa. Yeah, I lived at a Tibetan temple for about a year and practiced pretty seriously there. And um, their tradition's amazing because you come in and, and it's, it's you got to do the devotion thing first. I had to do a hundred thousand prostrations while saying the three refuges before he, they'd even like have a conversation with me. And it was like one of the greatest experiences of my life to like beyond any idea of mine about what I should be doing to just be like literally throwing my body at, at the high, at my highest aspiration, utterly transformative and to this day when the going gets tough i i do 108 prostrations no matter what my head thinks about it and to me that's like a very concrete uh expression of devotion which if you read more into these texts i quoted really it doesn't become mysterious they're like what do we mean bowing making offerings to the altar chanting sutras sitting zazen hold you know doing this when everyone else does this in the zendo but doing it like your life depends on it you know, because it because it does. Um, okay, well, uh, I'm so 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 thankful, Joel and Sean, that you brought this up because it is so deeply important. Mm. I mean, I have really been moved and inspired by the conversations today.
Oh, thank you. I have two. I have two. And I think, you know, to use that word numinous, like when I was really reflecting on like, okay, so what does this, this precept bring that isn't only kind of a recapitulation of what's come before? And to me, it, it does bring into the table this kind of like numinous beyond understanding dimension. Um, so maybe we can end with, I'll just read the precept one more time with Dogen's little capping phrase that I find so moving um, and we can call it a day, but I'd, I'd love to continue um, if anybody wants to have a little Dharma friend meeting in the future, let me know. All right, so here we go. I vow not to disparage the three treasures. To expound the Dharma with this body is foremost. The virtue returns to the ocean of reality. It is unfathomable. We just accept it with respect and gratitude. And respect and gratitude to you. Mm.